0: Good morning. We are going through the book of Jude. We are winding down to the final verses in this letter. And as we've discussed in the past, um, those of you that have have uh, joined in in previous weeks, and we're here from the beginning, uh, we've established that the book of Jude is a book primarily written to uh, most likely Jewish believers of the first century in Israel. And reasons that we know that is that uh, Jude himself doesn't seem to have ever left Israel. He was born, raised, and died there. We know that his generational descendants lived in Israel up to the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in 135 A.D. That his great-grandson was uh, one of the final elders, Jewish elders, in the Church of Jerusalem until the Bar Kokhba Rebellion when... uh, uh, Romans who had just suppressed the Jewish rebellion, there was an anti-Jewish movement. And so uh, throughout the Roman Empire in the 2nd century, a uh, huge rise in anti-Semitism as a result of the rebellion. And so the Romans made uh, negotiations with Gentile Christians at that point to take over the church in Jerusalem because there were so many Jewish believers that were dispersed with the Jewish community uh, that the even the family of Jesus, the family, the relatives, the physical relatives of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, lost their footing. Uh, they weren't even allowed to enter the city of Jerusalem anymore. The only time you could enter the city of Jerusalem, um, especially after 135 A.D., was on the anniversary of the destruction of the temple. So the temple destruction in 70 A.D., uh, Jews from there forward, didn't matter if you were a believer or believer if you considered yourself Jewish and part of the nation of Israel, the only time you could go into the capital city of David was on the, as a Roman reminder, was on the anniversary of the destruction of the temple. Uh, It's a really terrible thing. And uh, uh, in 1967, Israel regained control of Jerusalem finally, after almost 2,000 years, and um, are able to pray in the city uh, if and when they so choose, anytime they want. So the Temple Mount is still, uh, while under the nation of Israel's uh, military control, Obviously, there's, there's no temple there to this point, but um, uh, the idea of the departure at that point also affected the church in Jerusalem, which was predominantly Jewish well into the second century. And so we know that Jude is writing about um, this kind of situation, and he's most likely writing after 50 A.D., after the Council of Jerusalem, but he's most likely also writing before the death of his brother James in 62 A.D., and so James, the brother of Jesus, the James that we have the James ossuary for, he was pushed off the, the corner of the temple in 62 A.D. Uh, he fell to the, the rock basin, the stone basin of the floor. He survived, and he was clubbed and stoned to death on the temple floor in 62 A.D. Um, a, death writ, a death sentence was issued out by the high priest uh, at that time, Ananus, and, um, which was actually illegal which we've talked about in previous sermons. It was illegal to uh, execute an Israelite in the sanctuary of God. They had to be taken outside the camp for that sort of thing. So they, in the case of Jerusalem, they were expected to take them outside the city walls. So there was killing actually getting done within the presence of God. And at this at the time of the Second Temple, violence had escalated so bad that the high priest was participating. We know this. The Gospels say that the high priest was participating. What's the number one example that we have of the high priest participating in violence? Jesus, right? Is that that Caiaphas was even participating in this. He was setting up to hand over to the Gentiles what they couldn't do, right? Which should be illegal in and of itself, but handing them over to the Gentiles because the Romans wouldn't allow him to do it or take them outside the city, so therefore we'll just let the Gentiles take care of it. So now you, what should have been a Sanhedrin trial, which was an illegal trial anyway, was also in the case of Jesus handed over to uh, pagans, polytheistic Romans. Right? Um, huge taboo, huge breaking of Torah. You don't you don't bring polytheists into a. Uh, into matters of the temple, and uh, they were willing to do that. So what Judas is talking about here is, is a time of really bad turmoil just before the destruction of the temple, just before the killing of a million, roughly a million Jews in 70 A.D., uh, and an outbreak of anti-Semitism that uh, by the time of the second rebellion, uh, several more died, up to 600,000. estimate died in the Bar Kokhba rebellion as well. So just a terrible time. And the believer is caught in between, especially the Jewish believer, is caught in between one community that is willing to do that and talk about and do these other things that even violate the Torah. And they're also caught between this, uh, this, this other movement of what happens when Gentile believers come in who come from a polytheistic background. And so, They're sitting in the middle of of all this turmoil saying, what can we do? And they have false teachers coming in. And where we left off in verse 16, if you have your Bibles, you can go to Jude, uh, verse 16, uh, just before Revelation. So you start a Revelation, go back. And we're in Jude. There's only one chapter, so verse 16. And we had talked about these false teachers that are first mentioned in verse 4 of men who deny... Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, they deny him as the master, as the teacher, and these are men who are considered irreverent ones, and that's how they're described throughout uh, Jude's letter. That's the repeated term that's used to describe this demographic as being irreverent ones. And when we left off last week, we were talking about um, verse 16 and, and Jude coming out of uh, a prophecy about Enoch talking about the Lord, the saints, coming with the saints, and judging the irreverent ones are the three demographics that Jude's talking about in his letter, but he says Enoch's prophecy says the same thing. He goes into verse 16 and he says, these are grumblers, these men, and this is their disposition. They find fault, following after their own desires, Epiphanius, And so we talked about uh, uh, Epithemia. We'll, we'll go back into that real quickly, but uh, they follow after their own desires. They speak arrogantly, all right? And we're, follow that term, but they speak arrogantly. And we said they were sycophantic, they flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So the, term, the text does not use the word sycophant, but we have this word in modern English, and it also comes from Greek. And last week we talked about the word sycophant, sycophantes, comes from one who shakes a tree, So it's a term saying this guy's a tree shaker. And out of Greek, out of Greek culture, the idea was that it mainly comes from prosecution in court, is that you would shake a tree. So think of jurisprudence. So I'm looking at Nick. Think from a jurisprudence standpoint that you just can't get the confession you want. So what do really bad lawyers start to do? appeal to emotion, right? You try to get the person, if, if you're going to be a, a, a manipulator, you start appealing to emotion and try and get them to emotionally break down on the stand, right? And they make movies about this. Like, I don't want to go back in time, but this is pretty much the whole premise of the show Matlock from the 80s, right? <laughs> get the person to break down and confess the murder, right? And so these people in Greek culture were primarily prosecutors historically, and they were called tree shakers because they would shake you until... The fruit fell that they wanted. And so the same idea here, even though Jews are not using that term, the same idea is you can also shake the tree with flattery until you get the thing you want, right? And that's how we use it in, a, in the, the States today. That's how we use it in the English language. When we say somebody is sycophantic, that they, are, they, they kiss up, right? They, 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 they say what they need to say and do what they need to do. They shake the tree until they get the things they want. They're, uh, they're political in, in their disposition. And so these people flatter like that for the sake of gaining an advantage, but they have no fear either. They also speak arrogantly. You see that? There's, there's no caution in what they're doing apart from strategy, right? They have a strategy, but they have no reverence because they're called also irreverent ones. And we also know, and we looked at this map last week, is that Jude is down where the star is. So let me turn this thing on. Did I break it? There it goes. It's buzzing. So Jude's here. What city is this? Yeah, a really important one, right? So Jude's living in here, and he's probably writing to people in Israel, right? Peter, there's some. It's hard to see on this screen, but this area right here is green. And Galatia and, and Sardis, Ephesus, all this is up here. That green is another Jewish settlement. And this, this red line is the extent of Jewish uh, settlers in the Diaspora at the time of the first century. But Peter's writing up here in his epistles to Jewish believers. It says to those in the Diaspora. And he even, we even know he's writing to Diaspora, believing Diaspora Jews, because he says those over here in Babylon send you greetings which you see another green spot, right? Those are the ones that left over who didn't return with Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zerubbabel at the time of the first return. They stayed in the Babylonian Persian Empire. Um, and to this day, there are still Jewish people living in Tehran, in Iran. There's around 10,000 Jews that live there. They've lived there since 500 BC. So they literally have stayed. Most of them left. When the, when the uh, uh, Islamic government took over, they fled. They went to Israel. But there's still some that live here. I don't know if you guys have seen on the news, like Mossad agents, how do they get into Iran? They're Farsi-speaking Jews, they're Persian-speaking Jews, and they're used as spies to go to Iran and spy on the Islamic government of Iran. Where did they learn to speak Farsi? From their parents who lived there for 2,500 years, right? And so Mossad sends agents over here. But Peter in the first, we know that that this is kind of semi-permanent because Peter is saying that even in the first century, they're sending greetings to these people over here through him. So we know that he's addressing a similar group of false teachers up here because he describes them in a similar manner. He calls them mockers. And what does he say about this, these people that are causing uh, these false teachers in his area that he's writing to? He says they follow after the same word, their own desires, right? And we looked in the New Testament last week and, and realized that this word desires is not always bad, right? Jesus uses this term, I've I, I desired, with desire I have desired to share this Passover with you, right? So that's not bad, but they're following after their own desires. And it's, it's in a mocking, arrogant context. And this is their mocking, arrogant context. is Whoever's going up there has something to do with the monotheistic Jewish God, and they're coming up and they're creating mocking statements to the church. And we know that this is Peter's writing to believing Jews primarily. And, he, and these people are coming in saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the patriarchs, the fathers, the patriarchs fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And we have here Epiphanius. so the same desires. But that's really important because when we go back to verse 17 in Jude, we have Peter's admonition to what? Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles, of which Peter is one. Uh, He was their leader. Jude, in verse 17 Says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. So he's giving a sim- similar admonition and what they were saying to you. And what did, what is the, what's the warning? It's the same warning that Peter, as an apostle, is giving the church in Asia Minor. It's this in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own desires. And Jude changed, he, he actually tweaks this to match what he's been calling this group desires of what? Irreverence. What are these false teachers called? The irreverent ones, right? They are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly minded, and then he says very specifically, not possessing the spirit. They don't have the spirit of God. But the, both in both cases, it's empeiketai. Uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, so empeiketai. Uh, in, sorry, tai. They're both mockers. I don't think that's a coincidence, Church, that he's using the exact, that both these men, who are both, as far as every record we have that's a biblical record and not some weird 3rd or 4th century thing where it says that they went to places in Europe, both of them are in Israel. Both of them are listed in the New Testament as uh, apostles to the circumcised. And both of them are using descriptions of the same... uh, same terminology, same semantic terms for these false teachers in two different parts, which means that these are probably the same false teachers, right? And we establish what? Where were they probably sent from? This is really important. Where were they probably sent from? From Jerusalem, right? What example do we have of of someone trying to counteract a movement, a pro-Jesus movement being sent from Jerusalem, Paul himself, right? And so the Pharisees, we know the Pharisees operated outside of the land of Israel. And Jewish history even says this, that you had men from abroad who operated in the Pharisaic party and came in and out of Israel. This is why Joseph of Arimathea is from Arimathea in Syria, but is yet on the Sanhedrin council, right? He's from Syria. Gamaliel, Paul's mentor, His grandfather was Hillel, a very famous president of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, but he was born in Babylon. So we know that the Pharisees came from abroad. They went back abroad. We have a great example of one who's born in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, trains in Jerusalem, and then is sent to Damascus, becomes a believer, becomes the Apostle Paul. This was a common issue. But this is what Jude says. So he has these mockers don't have the spirit. What does he say to the believers? Right? The agape toy. What does he say? But you, beloved, building yourselves up. So build yourselves up to be able to deal with this in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, which these men do not have. What's the key difference between the, the, uh, the uh, holy ones, the saints, and these false teachers? What's the key distinction? You have the spirit. They don't, right? Keep yourselves in the love of God or protect yourselves, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. So this, it says, Hagiotate uh, Haimon Piste, like Hagiotate uh, is this superlative of most holy, most holy faith, most sacred. But it has to do with Jesus Christ as Lord and eternal life, Right? So that epicenter, and this is leading up to the verses we're going to look at today. So what did we say was the epicenter of the most holy faith? Paul says the first importance. What's the first importance? So he's just got done talking about the communion, right? I deliver to you what was delivered to me on the night Christ was betrayed, and we say this at Communion Sunday, right? What does he say is of first importance? He mentions it in his letter later, but he says, "This is of first importance, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received." And this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You see that? That he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kepha, Peter, and then to the twelve, and after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to Jacob, or my brother, Jude's brother James, right? Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God I am what I am, and by his grace toward me, by his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and you, church, you so believed. We preached and you believed. And then he goes into his argument as to why you have to confess the resurrection of the dead for you to have a legitimate faith, because if you don't confess the resurrection, the physical resurrection of the dead, Christ is not raised. Because then you're negating the idea that people can raise from the dead. right? And so this is the epicenter of the faith. Paul says this is of first importance. Why is that important? (laughs) So if you have to persevere in the faith, and he says in verse 3, Jude says in verse 3, to contend earnestly. We talked about that's an internal-external struggle. If you contend earnestly for the faith, and this is at the center of that faith, is this what the irreverent ones are trying to negate, according to Jude? In verse 4, he says yes, right? Verse 4, he says they're trying to deny. What are they trying to deny? That Jesus is both what? You remember the two terms? That Jesus is Lord and Jesus is, what's your Bible say? Verse 4. Does it say Lord and Master? Right? What are they denying? That Jesus is what? Lord and Master. Right? The word Lord in verse 5 is who that led who out of where? Jesus, who led the Jewish people out of Egypt. So even these false teachers are literally, according to Jude, pulling the theological foundation out from under themselves because it is even Jesus, who is the Lord, who physically manifested himself, who led the Jewish people out of Egypt. You see that? This is really important because he says this. I want you to pay attention close here today, because this, in light of everything, of uh, a persevering in light of any kind of persecution. This is a theological persecution, but it also led to physical persecution for Jewish believers in Israel. They were killed for this. He also says he also Jude also in verse twenty two, and this is where we're going to go. He also indicates how we are supposed to behave as believers if we come under this kind of scrutiny right? And under this kind of persecution, and folks in New England, you're probably getting one of the worst theological persecutions there is. I hate to say it, but probably the only other place, and it's, I don't think it's near as bad as here, is California, but not, not yet. You still have some, some people holding out in, in larger numbers for confessing the scriptures, even on the West Coast. But here in New England, I mean, New London County, Bible-confessing churches are 3%. I think it's 3% on city data. So when he says to contend earnestly for the faith and that at the epicenter has to be eternal life in Jesus Christ, at your epicenter that you cannot abandon that, we have to say then, how do we live with our neighbors around us and with people coming in and out of the church? And by in and out of the church, I don't mean coming and leaving in a salvation sense. I mean coming physically here And potentially leaving. And then coming back here and then leaving. And Jude has been giving us three core demographics. He's given us in in his letter, right? What's his three demographics? We have, if you don't get anything else out of this letter, you got to understand these are the three demographics of Jude. You have the Lord, right? And then we have who? The saints and the irreverent ones. Okay, you have those three. It's very interesting because pay, pay attention to what he says here. This is how the church should react. And this is how our disposition should be. Emotionally how we should be. In our treatment how we should be. Have compassion on those who are indeed doubting. Does it say put the doubters out? No, you have compassion on them. You see that? Have compassion on the doubters. Others, moreover, so host day, right? Others, moreover, rescue by seizing them out or away of pyre of fire. And we're going to talk about that. <laughs> but then others, moreover, so even more so. So you have see, there's three things here. Others, moreover, have compa- compassion in fear, in fable. That's literally what it says, in fable. Even detesting a shirt or tunic that has been stained by the flesh, by sarcos. So we have Jude's recommendations for dealing with people, and obviously this has to deal with not just could-be saints, and I hate to break it to everyone in the room, but you can't peer into the hearts of men to know who has the Spirit and who does not. You can see their fruit, right? But if you claim you can peer into the hearts of men, you're, you're, you're one of two things. Uh, you're either the Messiah himself, in which case we need to drop down and worship you because Jesus is sitting in this room and not disclosing himself, or you're lying. You cannot peer into the hearts of men. As another man, you cannot peer into the hearts of men. The prophets could not peer into the hearts of men. Only one person knew the thoughts of men. Who does the gospel say knew other people's thoughts? Jesus of Nazareth, that's right. Even when he abandoned himself, think about that for a minute before we go forward. Even when Christ abandoned parts of, attributes of himself in the incarnation, what was he still able to do? Know the thoughts and hearts of men. Even in the incarnation. That's something particular only to God. Only God is able to do that. According to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, only God has that ability. They say, we don't have that. That's left to the Lord. Where do we get that the most? Samuel, right? The selection of David as a king. Lord looks at what? Adonai looks at what? So if you have an incarnation of this person that you think might be a prophet and might be the Messiah, but he can see into the hearts and minds of men, who does that say that he is? That's a claim that he's God himself. So let's keep going because humans here do not have that. The apostles don't say they have that. The prophets don't say they have that. And they literally say, for the prophets, Adonai has that. For the apostles, they watched Jesus do it. You know what they're thinking. We don't. So this is Jude's recommendation for believers. So watch this, church. Hesitant doubters, they need to be treated with compassion, right? They may believe, they may not. You don't know. You have a confession, but they could doubt. You don't know. You know yourself, but you don't know others. They need to be treated with compassion because of that. Some will need to be protected as being as if being pulled from fire. Now, if point number one leads off with being compassionate. Okay? Is this saying, now follow me here, is this saying that my evangelism, and this is really important theologically. Does my evangelism and my words save people from hell? I sure hope not, because if I mess up, things are in trouble, right? I'm hopefully passing the message of the apostles and the prophets forward through teaching. That's the goal of a pastor, is that we're supposed to, we are not prophets, we are supposed to, if we have this gift of teaching, we're supposed to relay the message And teach it to the people, hoping that you go home and check the scriptures yourself and validate us. Right? I'm not giving you a message from God. It's not an oracle. But this being pulled from fire. Think of your child. If you're a parent and a kid jumps on Parents of sons. Because parents of sons and parents of of Kira Miles. If your kid plays with fire, which we have one that loves fire, and they get too close, and their shoes catch fire, what's your reaction? Well, I hope they learn the hard way to never do that again. What do you do? Get out of there, right? So even in this case, it seems to be the pulling from fire is in my opinion, it's not, it, it can't be me pulling people from hell. God saves people from hell through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm not doing that. But you, you protect them as if being pulled from a fire. You see that? A burning building, someone stuck inside. You go and get them out. we have any first responders in here? Anybody that did first response in the old days? Okay. Fire response, right? You have an SOP. On how you're supposed to engage a fire. If it gets bad, does SOP get slightly abandoned and everyone rushes? Always, <laughs> right? It's like, okay, we're not gonna be able to take five minutes, let's go now, right? This, this building's gonna collapse. It's that idea, is that compassionate? It better be, you're putting your life on the line, right? That's what it seems he's talking about, is that through compassion there may be emergency situations where you have to pull someone out. You see that? Now, number three, this is really important. I don't think, and I don't think this is an eschatological statement. And what I mean by that is, is heaven and hell. It's literally just dealing with people. I don't think he's theologically branching out into heaven and hell. I think he's literally talking about dealing with people because throughout this entire letter, he's been talking about what? The saints, the irreverent ones, and how to deal with this situation, right? This is saints, irreverent ones, how to deal with the situation. Out of compassion, sometimes people will need to be pulled or protected as if being pulled from a fire. Thirdly, and this is why we need to—if we we need to establish the first two to get to the third. So the third, some, some. So in verse in uh, instance one and instance two, instance two, are they trying to put themselves in harm's way? Not necessarily, right? These are people who are not trying to put themselves in harm's way, but they may find themselves in the potential for harm's way or in harm's way. The third group, he says, some others must be treated with compassion, but with, in fear. And I put with fear, but it's actually in fear. So compassion in fear is literally what the text says. Because they deliberately bring a stained shirt you see that? They bring, a stain, they bring staining to the church. So let's go back and look at this. So others, moreover, have compassion on them in fear, even detesting a shirt that has been stained by the flesh. So someone that doesn't wash their laundry. Okay, These are really good illustrations on the part of Jude. Someone who deliberately doesn't wash their laundry, unrepentant, comes, deliberately, volitionally comes in with a stained shirt. What does he say about them? Be fearful. Be compassionate, but in fear. You know, have a healthy, what we say now uh, with modern psychology coming in, have a healthy relationship. They talk about healthy relationship. He's giving a healthy relationship of how you engage them. Does Does it say kick them out? Does it say treat them at arm's length, but yet be compassionate? You see the difference? Right? There's there's no way you can get to this and and come to a conclusion of aggression. And that's what we see the temple doing in the first century with believers, right? What are they doing to them? They're getting aggressive. So aggressive that they kill the brother of Jesus. They literally do it in the temple estate. They didn't even do that with Jesus. They gave him to the Romans and took him outside of the city. With James, they kill him on sight. They get aggressive. You see the difference? What's Jude saying? Don't be like that group. Who is most. Now if, we're follow, now, if we're following in tandem here, that this is similar to Paul's scenario, who sent the irreverent ones? Probably the same group that gets aggressive defensive to the point of aggression, where their, their mindset is. Is it not better for one man to die than for a whole nation to suffer? Let's get aggressive. Like, it, it's literally that, is that they are willing to have a defense that is denoted by having a good offense to keep things in check. Jude's saying, believers, you can't do that. You have to be compassionate, but in fear. Do we have other instances of that? So you have to detest the shirt that they're wearing in there, the, stain, the stain-ridden shirt. But you have to be compassionate with fear. So what does this mean, to be compassionate with fear? Well, we have three demographics. Let's go back to our demographics. We have the first one, right? The Lord, Jesus Christ, verses 3 through 5, says that he is uh, Adonai. He's a kurios, according to Jude. He is Lord. He is the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. And I can't spell out. I spelled our Egypt. Thank you, autocorrect. Uh, he is the master that brings judgment. He's called the master. And he's also in verse 2 called the protector or keeper, the Natsar, which we know is a messianic title according to the Old Testament. The saints, the holy ones, those of you that believe and confess Christ sitting in this room right now, this is your category. You're beloved, you're agape toy. And you can pray in the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of God. Enoch prophesied about you in the time of the ancients about the return of Christ, that he comes with his saints to execute judgment against the irreverent ones, and that you'll be with him in the future. So even from the very beginning of the time of the ancients, it was prophesied that the saints would return with the Lord, would come with the Lord. This is you. If you confess and believe Jesus Christ, consider yourself one of these. Beloved of God, And as my church history professor from South Boston used to say, this is important, saints. He would say that every time in church history. If you wanted people to pay attention because we're usually falling asleep, he would say, that's important, and everyone knew to sit up. But he would call us saints. When you're 20 years old, you don't really embrace the idea of that. But now understanding, now that he's retired and emeritus with Moody Bible Institute, and all the time, what do we say? That's important, saints, right? And it comes from Dr. McDuffie. But then he has this one, false teachers. The irreverent ones, they deny the Master and Lord. We just talked about this. They share commonality with irreverent ones in history. So as the saints share commonality with those in history that are called kodeshim in the Old Testament, the saints, the irreverent ones share commonality with other irreverent ones in history as well. And these men are sycophantic and they're arrogant and they're mockers and they follow their own desires and it says in verse eleven they have shared behaviors with Cain, which is marked by jealousy and violence, according to Hebrews. Balaam, who is marked by his own ambition, to where God had to oppose him because he left ambitiously, and Korah, which was a rebellion of authority against Moses and Aaron trying to take over the uh, the worship center. So these men are marked by this, according to Jude. So this fear, fear in or compassion in fear. The questions we have to ask is, what, else, what does the New Testament say both about irreverence and irreverent behavior as well as this idea of fear? Okay? The first thing we need to look at, if you're still in Jude, go back to verse 12. Go back to verse 12 because he tells the believers to have compassion in fear. What does he say about group number three in verse 12? These are the men who are hidden rock reefs in your agape feasts. So we have a dinner. You see that? In the time when you're eating, when feasting together with you, how do they feast with you? Without fear. These men don't have any fear. You see how these are mutually exclusive to one another? You are compassionate in fear. These men are arrogant without what? Fear, okay? They shepherd and tend for themselves, clouds without water being carried along. They have no purpose along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, having died twice and been uprooted. But literally, so it says, compassion in phobol in verses 22 and 23, okay? In this one, it says that these men feast aphobols. So if I'm a theist and I believe in God and I say someone is an atheist, what does that mean? Without theism. Right? They don't believe in God. What do these men have literally? Aphobo. They're aphobic. They're without fear on anything. They literally don't have any fear in anything. That's literally how they're described. Aphobos. Atheist? Aphobos. <laughs> these men don't have it. Very bold, right? Very bold, very audacious. But does the rest of the New Testament say anything about Arrogance and not having fear, or arrogance and not having reverence, or arrogance and not having, uh, I can't think of the other word I was going to say, but arrogance without fear, arrogance without reverence, arrogance without lamenting bad things, okay? 1 Corinthians 5, real quick before we keep going, turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We were in 1 Corinthians 5, When it came to establishing the agape feast a couple of weeks ago, and that was a little bit deliberate on my part because we needed to establish the feast and talk about communion, which we see in a progressive order from 1 Corinthians 5 to 1 Corinthians 11, that the first century church pre-250 AD most likely had a dinner and then had their communion after dinner just like Passover, which makes total sense as to why pharisaical authorities would want to get into that action because they see something Jewish and it's professing Jesus and they're trying to counter, counteract that. But Paul says this about the church in Corinth. So he has an instance where he is hundreds of miles away and he hears an instance about a guy who has either moved in with or she has moved in with him, but it's his, essentially his stepmother. So she has left his dad, and it says co- that she is cohabiting with him in verse 1. So 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it says that they have, um, they have this amongst their congregation. But <laughs> at the same time, they have done nothing about it. They've almost embraced this union. And Paul says even the Gentiles, the other nations, don't embrace this, but yet you have. Verse 2 <laughs> He says this literally, you have become inflated, which is another word for arrogant. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to the guy living with his stepmother? No, he's talking to who? He's calling out the church. You have become inflated. Now, that's, who Jude, that's what Jude's saying about the false teachers, right? Do you see how you can't differentiate who's saved and who's not in your immediate interaction with other humans? Jude's saying it about false teachers. Paul's saying it about who? His audience. You've become inflated, and have not grieved and said you haven't grieved this or lamented this, so so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. If you grieved this, what should they have? They should have compassion in fear. You see that, and be removed. But is it removed like throw them out? No, it's removed from the immediate midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, have judged, and that's an active verb, have judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. So because the church didn't say anything or make a judgment around this, but it is public knowledge to the point to where Paul's hearing about it. Imagine imagine being in Florida and hearing about something occurring here in Connecticut, right? It's so public that wherever Paul is when he's writing this, he knows about it. It's that public. And he says, all right, well, since the church is not doing anything about this, what has he done? I've made a judgment on this, right? I've made it literally a determination on this, as though I were present. And different translations do different things around this, but I want, I want you to see this real quick. That, um, uh, and we'll get into the text real quick. But uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. So I have judged him. And then the next active verb is an aorist verb, but it's active, namely to deliver, and it's an infinitive. So to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, why did I do namely to, to deliver? Well, anyone that's had a little bit of Greek knows that the uh, king of the run-on sentence is who? Paul. Nobody knows how to properly punctuate Paul. It's an ongoing joke in seminaries across the world that you you, you really can't bring the period into Paul. It's more like he's the king of parentheses, semicolons, and commas because he's making these giant arguments, right? And he qualifies his arguments. You would think that the guy's a theologian or something. But he qualifies his arguments, and he has all these sub-arguments in order to establish his primary argument. Okay, So the NASB, what does it say in verse 5? should have something. If you've if you got your pew Bible, does it have something in italics? Yeah. It says what? I have, I have decided. You see that? Okay. So they take it as this infinitive down here is dependent on, upon Paul's judgment, where I have judged. Okay? So I have judged. The net Bible, okay, instead says to deliver as an imperative. So, in the NET Bible, the Dallas Seminary translation, they tell they translate it as an imperative, saying, "I'm not there; you guys deliver him to Satan." You see that? However, the other two instances of this word, uh, paradunai, to deliver, okay, both other instances in the New Testament. There's only two other instances where this is used. It's in the Book of Luke, and in Luke 20, I believe it's 20:20. Yes. Luke twenty twenty. It's the Jewish authorities hearing Jesus and sending spies to try and catch him in a mix of words to hand him over to the authorities. So they send the spies to watch him, that's your active investigate, to hand him over. The other instance is in Luke twenty two six, where Judas is seeking a good time, which is the active verb, to hand him over. Do you see that? So in the other two instances of this infinitive, it's based directly upon the active verb back here. So Judas seeks a good time to deliver him. The Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes seek a good time to deliver him. Paul says, I have judged him to deliver him. You see that? If If we want to be grammatically consistent, then that infinitive has to be dependent upon Paul's judgment. But is the church, is he exempt? Now, follow me here, church, because this is really important. Even though Paul's hundreds of miles away and tells them what to do, he's pronounced the judgment as the teacher, as their teacher. He's not there present, but he said, it's just as if I am present. He says, I have judged to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So it's an earthly judgment, okay, in this life right? Who does he say has to be involved with it in the parentheses? This is Paul the theologian talking. Who does he say? In the name of the Lord Jesus, so who's present? The authority of Jesus, right? When who's assembled? When you're assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of who? Jesus. Who's there? Paul, is Paul a saint? Who's the church? It's important, saints. Who's the church? (laughs) Right? You, when you're assembled, who takes the active part to hand this person over to Satan? Paul and the church and the local church. You see that? They are not, when he says I am making the judgment, it's because they didn't do the right thing. So he's instructing the right thing that they have to also take an active part in because I'm not there. But I'm with you in spirit when you gather. I have judged to do this. That's all it means. But you you can see it's on a human level, right? This is not handing someone... First off, the devil's not in hell. The devil's on earth. He's been exiled from heaven to earth. Ezekiel's very clear about that. So handing him over is where? In this life, on this earth. You see that? Why does Paul say to do that? Does this person come in with an open now follow me with Jude's terminology does this person come into the congregation with an openly stained shirt everyone knows about it right and is that would that person be considered arrogant according to Jude absolutely but who is Paul saying is arrogant the church for accepting it the church for accepting it he says you've become arrogant and he says this, your boasting is not good. You see this? Paul's having to compassionately correct them. <laughs> do you not know that a little chametz, a little bit of leaven, leavens the whole lump of dough? Sorry, I've got to throw the Jewish terms in here, chametz. So cleanse out the old chametz like we do at Passover so that you may be a new lump just as you in, are in fact unleavened. You are like matzah. For Christ, our Passover, our Pesach, has been sac- sacrificed Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. We just talked about this being a a dinner, right? A couple weeks ago. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, so not with the chametz, but with the matzah of sincerity and truth. This is why we eat matzah. Then he continues, verse 9, and this is important. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but... He says, not all with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers and with idolaters, for then you would have to depart from the world. So if we talk about, if he's talking about here not associating with them, where, where does this judgment take place again? In this world, right? Not in the eschaton. This is something that is done in this world, in this life. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone designated what? Brother. In Hebrew, achi. My brother, achi. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a violer or a drunkard or a swindler, if he's a brother, what does it say? Don't eat with him. What does it mean, don't eat? What are they eating? The feast, right? Most likely, it's just talking about the agape meal. This person coming in claiming to be a brother brings in false teaching, brings in idolatry, brings in anything that is a false teaching and still calls himself brother and is open about it, especially as open as this individual seems to be, that you shouldn't embrace that and don't eat with them. So you have the agape meal, but what else does that mean? If they're that open about it, what should they probably not take? I hate to be the statement stater or the obvious here. They shouldn't be confessing the covenant. They're open about it. They have the stained shirt. They don't care. They are fearless. You see this? It doesn't, it, when it says remove, so and this is really important. So not to even eat with such a one. But then Paul very much clarifies again. What does he say? For what have I to do with judging who? The outsiders not my concern, right? Do you not judge those who are within? You see that? Making distinctions. But he, he, he's making it very obvious, church, that this, that this level of person that he knows about hundreds of miles away is very open about this and has no regard, right? And the thing that he's actually trying to correct is the church's response to that, But those who are outside, who who judges them? Let God take care of them. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So where does Paul go back to? Do you know where this is quoted? Where does Jude go back to for his examples? It goes to the Torah, right? Where's Paul quoting? The Torah. Like this should be obvious for you guys (laughs) because you have these scriptures in front of you. Does it say to do this in an aggressive way? Anywhere does it say to do this in an aggressive way? No, you won't find that with the apostles. You won't, you won't even find that necessarily with, with, uh, with Moses either because even if it's like a capital punishment, it's still a bad time. It's a mournful time that that even has to happen. This should really tell us something about how our disposition is in light of immoral uh, culture around us. Attacking the outside culture, I hate to break this to you, but attacking the outside culture does nothing. If you're surprised that the outside culture is dark and pagan and immoral, could you please show me the rock that you have been living under? (laughs) Because for 6,000 years, it has been what? Dark and immoral and uncultivated and and God-hated. We know this. Like Ten minutes of reading Genesis should tell you, oh, this is how it's been since Adam and Eve got kicked out. Okay. Right? It's what we, what are we called to handle? Inside, right here. Good teaching, not false teaching. But not in an aggressive way. That's how, that's how the outside does things. The moment we behave like outsiders and use aggression, or even virtue signal aggression, you have walked the way of the outsider. The moment you use political platforms in lieu of good theology, you have behaved like the outsider's. That's one thing that, I'm sorry, I'm going to rant for a minute, I am so sick of hearing about with Bible-confessing churches using political platforms in lieu of good theology. Because you will agree with the non-believers on the political platforms. You know why? Because they're shallow. They're meant to govern a nation of believers and non-believers, so they have to be shallow. What do you expect? Do you expect, I expect something higher when I am here? Do you not? You better. Otherwise, you have not elevated yourself. You have lowered your congregation. It doesn't matter if it's this church or a megachurch. The moment you sell out to the outside and address morality through outside means, you have abandoned theology altogether in exchange for philosophy and politics. It's reality. That's exact. And this is what Jude and Paul are trying to keep the church from avoiding from doing. Because it would be very easy for the church in Jude's case in Jerusalem to go the way of the rabbinic standard. Believe me, if you work in a Jewish community and it's a heavily rabbinic community, the number one phrase they use in English, guess what it is? Status quo. When a Jewish woman wants to get away from an ultra-Orthodox husband, there's Netflix documentaries about this. They want to divorce and get away from their husband because he's abusive. Guess what the husband uses with lawyers to keep the children? There's documentaries on this. What do they use? They say she is disrupting the status quo of the community, the cultural status quo. The moment you try to replace a cultural status quo with active, cognitive reasoning through the scriptures of theology, you're no better than the non believers. Your brain is on cruise control. That is why every apostle says, study the scriptures. Validate what I'm telling you. If you don't believe me, let's get out of Paul. Let's go over to John. John's usually kind of the, uh, he's treated as the theological softy in the New Testament, right? He preaches the deity of Christ, but you don't really hear much about him uh, in his gospel expelling anybody except for the two times that Jesus drove people out of the temple. That's a joke. What does he say in 2 John? He's writing, to a, he's writing to a woman here and, uh, with children. But he says to her, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Do they deny Jesus? Yes. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. So it's not the antichrist, not the child of the Satan in the future. But this person is a deceiver and an antichrist. They are against Christ. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who, what, goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, you see that? You have to abide in the teaching, does not have God. For the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring, what, This teaching, what does he say? Let them in? Does he say get aggressive with them? No. Don't receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Hey, come on in. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Do you see the compassion in fear? There's no aggression, but at the same time, you have to be fearful of that to protect the teaching. Fathers, this is your job as husbands in the household, protecting the teaching. Even if you're having a bad time personally, you have to do what? The same thing pastors do when they go through depression and go through a hard time. What do they have to protect? The teaching, right? You have men training in this congregation in Schaefer to learn to do what? Protect the teaching. My wife and I went to Moody Bible Institute so we could learn to do what? Protect the teaching, right? Right? One, to get the teaching, and secondly, to protect the teaching. Third John, let's see what else John says. He names this guy. This would be considered taboo in most uh, evangelical churches today, is naming the person. I wrote something to the church, but by, by, by Diotrophes, I can never say his name, Diotrephes, who loves to be the first among men, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, this I can't imagine being uh, uh, diotrophies and reading this. I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive any of the brethren either. You see that? This guy has really gone off the rails. For he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. You see the aggression of this individual? How many churches today have resorted to this? A lot. They either go one way or the other. They fully embrace and they never have any kind of concept of Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5. Or they get so culturally defensive that they create a pseudo-culture within their church that keeps people out. Neither of which engage the scriptures. Neither of which engage the scriptures. If they do, they give it lip service. It's virtue signaling. But neither of them want to have the fearful compassion of of I might have to engage with this person one-on-one. So Valerie and I worked in a church years ago, and I think I brought this up previously, where uh, in order to be a leading member in the congregation, there was 240 extra pages that you had to read and sign off on for membership and leadership and stances on abortion and uh, gender gender equality stance and all this other stuff. In order to get into basic membership, this is that. This is creating a pseudo-culture. Right? Creating a platform in lieu of just engaging scripture in every moment. So again, Jude's recommendations hesitant doubters be treated with compassion. We'll need to be pretended as if being pulled from a fire. The context is more immediate for the present church. Number three. Number three likely means the arrogant and irreverent ones. You show compassion, but in fear right in the case of Jew, and it's a hard place for a believer to be because that means you're constantly on the defensive so but that should tell you something about the armor of god in Ephesians 6 because there's no long weapon listed in Ephesians 6 there's a sword and it's this big it's defensive we we're never told that we have the ability to see into the hearts of others we we've established that only Jesus has had that ability you cannot declare saved and unsaved you can't as a human being even with the holy spirit you have your marching orders, and it's not to declare the salvation of one person or the other. We are not sacerdotal in our doctrine. So someone can have mutually exclusive confessions from time to time, and you have to treat them with compassion, but if they bring in false teaching and they're actively putting it in, you have to treat them with fear. But not a crazy fear, not an aggressive Fear. So handing over to Satan, I mean, this, this uh, saying something counteractive to the truth of the God-man-messiahship of Jesus of Nazareth is a red flag to be fearful, right? Perhaps resulting in ending of the fellowship of that person for a time, not eating with them, handing them over to Satan in this life for temporal chastisement, not eternal. You know, Satan's an angel. He's a cherub. And as an exiled angel, his fear of influence is confined to where? This world, Right? And with only the permission of the Lord anyway. Right? We see that in Job. He ends here. Just to remind them of being fearfully compassionate. He reminds, he, he, he closes his letter. I'm going to end with this today. He closes his letter with the authority that they have and him whom they're supposed to praise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling protect you from stumbling. Who does it? Internally, right? That internal struggle for the faith, he keeps you from stumbling. And to stand you in the presence of his glory, blameless with exaltation, with joy, to the only God, and that says monotheo, (laughs) like monotheism, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he gives this last uh, praise to God, the only God, and the Messiah. Glory, doxa, majesty, dominion, authority before every eon and now and unto all the eons. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. Lord, I pray that we understand that we have to dive into the scriptures and understand who you are, Lord so that we can both worship a God we know, preach a God we know about. Lord, that we are able to guard the teaching, we're able to protect ourselves, we're able to strive in the faith, contend earnestly. And Lord, when we get false teaching coming into the church, Lord, that not just the leaders, but also the congregants, Lord, guard themselves. Guard themselves from false teaching and have compassion on doubters and have and be willing to be compassionate enough to snatch people as if they're being snatched out of the fire if they're in dire straits. And, Lord, those who come in, open with stained shirts, Lord, that they are meant to receive compassion, but also be fearful. Lord, that we revere what you brought through your prophets and your apostles. We revere that teaching so much that we don't want to see it wasted and we don't want to see it tainted. We don't want to see it, as Jude says, blasphemed with something that is counteractive to what the scriptures say. The number one thing being Jesus is not the Messiah, Lord. We know you are. We confess you today as the Messiah, Lord, and everyone that confesses Jesus is Lord and believes with their heart that God raised you from the dead, they are saved. Lord, let us remember our place as saints. Let us remember the prophecies about you and us with you that we participate in these things because you so declared it and you so deemed it from Enoch forward that one day the saints would come with the Lord. Lord, how exciting it is. Guide us in your scriptures and illuminate us to who we are, who you are, so that we can worship a God we know. ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Go in peace.